0: climb halfway up, you reach halfway down, while my soul just waits in the middle, while my soul just dies, you reach halfway down, I'll climb halfway up, while my heart just splits in the middle, while my heart just dies. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Can I Say This at Church podcast. We thought today that we would finish or continue the conversation about hell. Uh, It is, not to put it lightly, important. It is an essential part of our church, of our beliefs, of us. Today, I got to interview someone that can speak with some authority from a different viewpoint than our last guest. Now, we are joined today by Dr. John Stackhouse, Jr. A little bit about him. Uh, He was born in Canada and raised in Southwestern England and in Northern Ontario. He was educated in history and religious studies at, at Mount Carmel Baptist School in Alberta, Queens University in Ontario. Wheaton College Graduate School in Illinois is where he got his master's with highest honors. And he also has studied at the University of Chicago where he got his PhD. He is formerly a professor of European History at Northwest College in Iowa. He's also been a professor of religion at the University of Manitoba and the Sang-Woo Yungtong Chi Professor of Theology and Culture at Regent University. He now currently serves at Crandall University in Moncton, New Brunswick as the Samuel J. Mikolaski Professor of Religious Studies and the Dean of Faculty Development. John has written 10 books. He's edited and authored Over 700 articles, uh, book chapters, reviews, and the list just goes on and on. He's spoken throughout North America, in the UK, in China, India, Korea, Australia. Uh, His commentary on religion and culture has been featured by many major broadcast networks such as um, the New York Times, The Atlantic, uh, ABC News. Uh, It was a privilege to talk to uh, Dr. Skakhouse, and and I, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. So, why am I still talking? Let's let's just dive right in. Spectral Show me your face. Don't leave me down below the speculate. I want my face. My guest today is uh, Dr. John Stackhouse. Uh, Dr. Stackhouse, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, would you prefer Dr. Stackhouse, John, Sir? How would you? What would be better to address you with?
1: Well, I've always preferred Your Majesty, but I don't get that as often as I'd like. So, any any of those, I'm comfortable with. Thank you.
0: We can we can do that if you want. Um, so I'm certain that some of our listeners are either unfamiliar with you or unfamiliar with the topic that we're going to discuss today. So I'd like to start with, if we can, just a little bit in brief of your story, kind of how you, how you came to the faith and how you, how you became where you are now at the university that you work at.
1: Well, I was uh, born and raised uh, mostly in Ontario, Canada, with some time in my childhood in Britain, where I started school. Uh, So this is about my fourth accent now. Uh, um, I've also lived and worked in uh, Texas and in Iowa, Illinois, and in uh, parts of Western Canada. Um, But I I studied in both Canada and the United States uh, history and theology and philosophy and taught in the U.S. in a couple of private colleges, uh, Wheaton College and Northwestern College, and then taught in Canada, both at a large public university, University of Manitoba and at a Christian graduate school called Regent College in Vancouver. And the last few years, I've been working out here on Canada's east coast in a small Christian university where I am a professor of religious studies, but also have a kind of player coach role. I'm also dean of faculty development, which gives me the opportunity to help my colleagues push ahead in both their research and their teaching. So that keeps me busy and happy out here.
0: Um, so, where in Texas? That's actually my stomping grounds. Where were you at in, in, I guess, my home state? In
1: 1978, my parents made the extraordinary decision to leave a lakefront home in Northern Ontario for a home in Abilene, Texas. Oh, my. Yeah. And that's there's, real. There's no Texas. lakes there. Yeah. I'm you actually know,
0: from a few hours west of Abilene. Uh, where my grandfather affectionately says with the right set of spectacles, I'll watch your dog run away for a few weeks just because yeah, there no is kidding. nothing there. So I'm no, missed...
1: just a few hours West of Abilene, you must be in the Permian, are you?
0: Yeah. Midland, Odessa, um, went to high school yes. in Greenwood and, uh, can't stand Midland Lee or Odessa or any of those schools, but that's <laughs> football would be an entirely different. Um, I, I could talk about football all day. Uh, well, neat. Uh, do you prefer the bigger school or the smaller school that you're at now? I mean, knowing that one employs you, but you know, just as far as um, the student basis and and size and, and you know, ratios and whatnot.
1: Well, uh, happily for me, I've enjoyed every place I've taught, and every place I've taught has also deeply frustrated me. And I think that's probably what it's like to to live in the in the real world: good things and bad things mixed up together. The
0: overarching theme of this podcast is is to ask questions. Uh, that you either don't want to ask or you're uncomfortable asking uh, in a quote-unquote church setting. And, and in my opinion, hell is an essential conversation that at least in my upbringing, I feel was a bit glossed over and it was presented as a, here's the one option you have and learn how to get right with it. And so I was believed in what I've come to call as eternal conscious torment or what other people call the traditional view uh, that I can't hold. Um, and so my question is, is there ever a time that, that you also were like that, where you have either taught it or you've been forced to teach it, or you were raised that way and, and somehow changed?
1: I certainly was raised that way. I was raised by parents who were both strong believers. I was raised in a Protestant tradition known as the Christian Brethren or the Plymouth Brethren. And so uh, that tradition gave us a dispensational theology And so these these are people who were very committed to the scriptures and to understanding the scriptures as well as they could were particularly interested in end times prophecy And so the doctrine of hell was bound up with all of those things that have taken american christian popular culture by storm from raptures and being left behind and all the rest of it so my very early teaching uh, was uh, that hell is uh, dark and painful and awful and hopeless and everlasting. And I can remember as, as a child, actually, one night as I'd gone to bed and said my prayers, trying to imagine what it would be like, um, leaving aside the excruciating pain of hell, just to be in a dark place by myself, like I was in my bedroom forever, knowing I would never get out and i remember i must have been only 6 or 7 at the time having a very keen sense of how awful that was and it left a very strong mark uh, that stayed with me when i was into my theology work decades later yeah
0: yeah i can echo that and i know as my child my oldest is 8 and he's beginning to question things and every once in a while he'll say something and i'm like i don't know i don't know how to answer that and be truthful and also not scare him to death um not that our church teaches that, but just, I mean, it is what it is. It's, it's an honest question. So, um, so what then made you move from the views that you held to what you now espouse? Um, what I believe some would call a conditional view of hell, and, and in a chapter of a book, you, you gave it a different term, and I'll, we can talk about that in a minute. But, but what moved you, or, or how did that evolve?
1: I was a convinced believer all of my growing up years, And in high school, tangled with a thoughtful uh, ex-Christian English teacher who seemed to me to have left his Roman Catholic Christian faith behind and was determined to help other people leave their Christian faith behind as well. And so that pushed me into thinking about apologetics and how to defend my faith, uh, even as a pretty young person, probably just 12 or 13. And... I saw this, though, as not just combat, uh, because I really like this English teacher, but as serious and searching conversation. And I'll always be grateful to him that the conversation was always respectful and even affectionate. And I'm on good terms with him to this day. He's read several of my books, and uh, in retirement, we've had a couple of good talks on the phone. So I was open to rethinking anything that I had been taught, if it were wrong, but I was also pretty inclined to defend it, unless I really couldn't. And it wasn't until I'd taken a year of Bible school and then was at a secular university for my first degree where I read a book uh, by uh, a British Bible scholar, John Wenham, uh, that was published by the InterVarsity Press. And I was an InterVarsity Christian Fellowship uh, chapter leader at that point and selling IVP books. So here's this. Uh, indubitably evangelical Christian publisher publishing this book by a fine Bible scholar and in this book called "The Goodness of God, Wenham, for the first time in my experience, raised the idea that hell was terrible and uh, was something one did not escape, but wasn't something that one had to endure infinitely. His idea was that a finite being can only pile up so much. Uh, debt, so to speak, you can only uh, sin so much. And then in hell, we pay for our sins because we didn't get Jesus to do it. And then once your sins are paid, you're done. And it made so much sense to me, it just made luminous sense to me that uh, I kept an eye out then for scriptural study over the next number of years to make sure that what he was saying wasn't just appealing, but was actually biblical.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I've gone through that as well. I am um... Similar, but I've inter- I've read many books recently, especially after starting this and realizing I I quickly got in over my theological pay grade. Um, I went to Liberty, but I did not get a theological besides that base level that a school will make you do. Um, so I'm finding that as well to be true. Um, so what are, or I guess what were, the biggest reasons that you could no longer hold the traditional view of hell?
1: Well, the first and most obvious reason. Uh, has to do with the title of that book that I first read, The Goodness of God. It had always seemed to me to be very difficult to hold together uh, the God, not only of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but also the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to hold a view of of a loving God uh, with the idea that God could somehow be joyful uh, forever while many of his own creatures that the bible tells me he loves are roasting away with no hope of reprieve this is a problem that actually ends up showing up uh, as a in the in the tradition thomas aquinas for instance who taught eternal torment uh, tries pretty desperately to come somehow get across the, the idea that the joy of god and of the blessed is somehow enhanced by knowing that the evil are getting theirs in hell and i thought this Thomas guy seems to be <laughs> having some empathy problems here. Uh, it seems to me to be pretty awful. So I was already, I think, theologically inclined to doubt that this made sense. There's some kind of real contradiction there. And yet I wanted to be faithful to what the Bible said. And if it really said that I had to believe in eternal torment, then I I can be pretty stubborn. I was gonna I was gonna stick to it. And so Wenham, when him, being a biblical scholar himself, Uh, opened the door for me, and then when I encountered the painstaking work of Edward Fudge, Mm -hmm. uh, your fellow Texan, um, where he laboriously goes through every passage that he can find that uh, pertains to this, as well as some uh, writings in the early fathers, uh, to me that really sealed the deal. And what I've done, I think, if anything, Seth, is perhaps to bring some theological sophistication to the uh, early work that John Wenham did, and the biblical work that Edward Fudge has done.
0: Huh? Yeah, I've I've tried to read some of Fudge, and I haven't gotten to it. It's on the it's on the shelf to my right. I did watch that. Um, I think it's a documentary, uh, which who knows how closely that follows things, but it was interesting to watch. Um, so uh, so I've had. Many private conversations, some with pastors, some with friends that are in ministry, and others that have become disenfranchised and weren't able to start their church after liberty. Uh, and and it seems to me that that many people entertain these thoughts, yet they're all cautious because they don't want to be implied that they're going down some slippery slope or that their faith is in question. So I'm just I'm just curious, why do you think people are just either I don't know what the word is. Are they are they so ingrained that they can't look past their bias, or are they? fearful of what would happen if they espouse to a different view.
1: I think people who come from the background you suggested, and certainly the people who come from my background as well, are properly worried that they are giving in to what they see to be the tidal flow of our culture. The general direction of the tidal flow of our culture, uh, and it's been this way for a couple of hundred years at least, has been to soften the hard things of Christianity, to erode the distinctive teachings of the faith, to uh, domesticate the scandal of the cross, the particularity of Jesus, and any other doctrine that seems difficult for a kind of mildly liberal outlook to swallow. So this sounds like it's a move in the same direction, and if we've been paying attention, we're worried about anything that looks like a move to a left. Most of us aren't actually worried about making a mistake to our right, but I would say that having understood why people are worried about a move that they perceive to be the, to, to the left, as a historian, where I've seen Christian movements uh, go both ways, or each way, uh, I, I would say... Don't worry too much about whether your move is to the left or to the right. Try to make a move toward the truth. And the truth is not always to the right. And that the solution to a culture that is driving into the left ditch is not to yank the steering wheel as hard as you can to the right and drive into the right one. That's the error of fundamentalism and the error of dogmatism. Instead, let's go deeper Yeah, rather than left or right, let's go deeper into the scripture and see if we can find out what the Bible says in a fresh and convincing way.
0: When you say left or right, I assume you're inferring the quote unquote Western Christianity version of, I guess, government or church, the way that things are as a status quo, at least currently, or or do you imply something
1: else? No, thank you for asking. No, I was trading on what I think is probably a common vocabulary for you and me and your listeners in terms of what we take broadly speaking to be liberal and liberal as a move to the to the left as opposed to conservative to the move to the right. I think as Christians, we need to realize that those words are not biblical words. Those are just more or less useful words to describe moves one way or another but they're not from the Bible, and our concern needs to be, of course, not to be liberal or conservative, but just be faithful and figure out what the Bible's saying.
0: Yeah. Was, it, was there ever a time, I guess, before, say, I don't know, I've been, as I've been researching, it seems like there was this gentleman named Darby that came in and installed what we still happen upon today. So was there ever a time that, that the view that you hold uh, was more prevalent or more predominant?
1: I don't think so, actually, Seth. I think it's always been a minority view in the history of the church. I think that what's interesting, though, is that the the two most uh, prominent views in the history of Christianity are either the traditional view of eternal torment or universalism, that hell is at worst a kind of purgatory for everybody. And that the worst people, at least everybody's not going straight to heaven. And so everybody does their time there, gets gets right with God, and, and then eventually the back door opens and you get to go be with God. Uh, that's shown up in the history of the church as well. This view that uh, I'm defending is uh, a view that only shows up from time to time, um, and particularly in the more modern period, where we realize that. It's really just a kind of modification of the traditional view. I think uh, that the reason I, I prefer it is not it's first because I think the Bible teaches it. And secondly, because I think everything that we need to retain in the traditional view is retained. The only thing we're giving up, actually, is this horrific idea that God is okay with people suffering infinitely and that we're supposed to somehow go to the world to come and enjoy the new Jerusalem, being okay with the idea that people we know are going to be suffering, not just they're just deserts, which I think we just have to be reconciled to. That's what happens when you don't take Jesus as your savior. Uh, you don't get saved. Uh, but that they somehow are kept in perpetual agony. Uh, I think we're well rid of that. And frankly, I, why not get rid of that if you possibly can since it's such a frightening and uh, ugly idea
0: yeah yeah no I agree it is it's an awful idea I will not leave till I've had my feeling only then will I return I will not go till I've found myself at every corner twist and turn find me in the sailing song I realized just a second ago as we were speaking that I think I skipped chapter one primarily because I've already done a little bit of pre-homework. So your view specifically is, quote unquote, the, um, through the conditional view of hell. And I know in your chapter on, in the four books on hell, you give it a different terminology. You call it terminal punishment. And so I was hoping maybe you could espouse just quickly what terminal punishment means as opposed to conditionalism. And then just in a, in a succinct nutshell, the, the primary difference, and you've already alluded to it, between it and the traditional version.
1: Sure. The view that I'm representing is uh normally known by one of two words the most uh, common word is annihilationism the idea that once you have been resurrected to judgment as we see in revelation 20 uh, everybody's resurrected and those whose names are not written in the book of life are cast into the lake of fire where they are uh, annihilated Uh, i don't think that's a really helpful view because annihilation um is a process that somehow God has to visit upon the damned. And God doesn't have to do that. God doesn't have to uh, crush some kind of immortal soul uh, because we don't have immortal souls. We we are simply creatures that are sustained moment by moment by the energy of God. Um, and so the idea of annihilation that God has to make me die isn't quite right. I choose to flee from the face of the only source of life in the universe. I am a sinner who has refused to accept uh, a relationship with God, and therefore I wink out of existence when God refuses to keep me uh, alive any longer. So God doesn't do a thing to me. I deserve what I get, and that's what I get. Conditional immortality is the technical term, not just conditionalism, but conditional immortality. And that's an unhappy term as well, because while it's not incorrect, it does get across the idea that we are not possessors of immortal souls, but we are simply creatures who are given, if we are saved, immortality by God. And that is true. That's a biblical teaching. That, that, that the focus is on the saved. And our whole conversation right now is on the lost. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's such a great term. So I've cast about for a better term, Seth, and it seems to me that terminal punishment it gets across two things. Um, to take it backwards. Everybody will atone for their sins uh, if they do not have Jesus atone for their sins. Atonement has to be made, and Jesus makes it for us. And if we will receive it by faith, then it will be credited to us. And if not, then we have to pay it ourselves. But just as Jesus was able to say on the cross, it is finished, I have in fact paid this um, so it's it's a certain finite amount of suffering that is, is uh, undertaken and if I don't let Jesus do it for me I have to do it myself so I then suffer the punishment that is due me and then I'm terminated because I have cut myself off from the only source of life in the cosmos once I'm done my suffering my debts paid and I disappear so it's awful and the consequences are eternal. I'm not coming back from that. There's no back door. Um, but on the other hand, I don't have to suffer infinitely for a finite lifetime's, uh, lifetime's worth of, uh, of sin.
0: Yeah, that's a, to, to put it into a political term of today, that is an extremely long mandatory minimum for regardless of whatever the sin is. Um, you said something a minute ago, which is, is different than I normally hear. So you said that as, as human beings, our souls are not immortal. I guess, by default. So can you mm-hmm. can you explain that a bit? Because I, sure. I know I've been raised to, nope, everybody is, you've been given an immortal soul, and it's got to go one or two places. So is that not scriptural, or is that no, just— No, it really
1: isn't. It's, it's, uh, it's Greek thought uh, creeping in uh, to Christian thinking, which a lot of Greek thought has through the early church— And I'm not one of those folks who reflexively thinks the Greeks are wrong about everything. It's one of the great civilizations of the world. And in the providence of God, Christian theology was worked out uh, largely with the help of Greek philosophical care and categories. Um, But with any non-Christian way of thinking, uh, some non-Christian ideas got in. One of them was uh, the idea of immortality of the soul. Now, the scripture is very clear that that life and immortality come to us only through the gospel uh, that's virtually a quote from paul's letters um, that the only one who is immortal invisible is god only wise as our hymn says uh, god's the only one who within himself has e- the eternal power to live forever so any kind of immortality we have is granted to us by God. And remember, you know, Adam and Eve are, are set out of the garden of Eden, lest they d- eat from the tree of life and dot, dot, dot. Die. Uh, yeah. So, so they're mortal. And, uh, and so are we.
0: To recap, terminal punishment is just a, a change of term to more accurately describe the end when it's all said and done. Correct as opposed to
1: the others. Now, let me also flag for a minute that a a few people who align themselves with my general point of view, I think have a seriously defective view. And I say that with respect, but these folks believe that when we're all resurrected on that last day, Revelation 20, Mm -hmm. uh, when those who are not uh, recorded in the book of life are cast into punishment, they're immediately annihilated they're immediately disappearing. And that to me makes no moral sense at all. Uh, I, I do think that Jesus talks about a servant who will be beaten with many blows, as opposed to a servant who will be beaten with few blows, that some people really are worse than others. Some people have caused a lot more damage in the universe than others, and their suffering will be a commensurate. Uh, with the evil that they've done. Everybody really will atone for exactly uh, his or her sins. So I wanted to just mention to you, Seth, and to your listeners, that some people hold to this view, which I think is going too far in the other direction. I think the Bible makes it pretty clear that that all those books that are talked about in Revelation 20, I think, imply that God has kept a careful account of everybody's behavior. And if you don't put your sins on Jesus, they're on you line by line. Sure. Sure.
0: In, in the book that I referenced earlier, The, the Four Views on Hell, uh, in your chapter you talk about two different, I, I, and I might say it wrong, so correct me if I am, um, two different poles of God's goodness as a way to understanding that goodness. Um, can you, I guess, elaborate on that a bit?
1: Yes, God is good in two ways. Our culture prefers us to emphasize one of those two poles, God is love. I've even heard quite orthodox theologians, people who should know better, say things like, whatever else God is, fundamentally, God is love. Not just well-meaning preachers, but people who really have their theological grounding will still say stuff like that. And it's just not true. Um, for one thing, everything that God is, God is. So it's not like God has layers, and he's got you know a heart of love, but then he's got this other layer of holiness you know um, he's got this other side to him uh, as if he's sometimes angry or he's sometimes wrathful or or it, so i know what they're trying to get at but in the very same letter of the new testament that tells us god is love first john uh, the same letter tells us god is light and in him is no darkness at all and God is straightforwardly, continually against anything that is not optimal, anything that is not right. This is why God is the God of justice and righteousness. God is the God who judges the world and makes everything right. I sometimes say that God's a perfectionist, and he's the only one who's a perfectionist who's not neurotic. Because when you're the supreme being, uh, you know you can make things right. And in, in Hebrew, uh, the the judge is not only the one who discerns what's right or wrong; he makes what's wrong right again. He levels things that are out of out of whack. So when Jesus comes back to judge the world, he's going to make it right. And this is God's settled opinion against evil. This is the wrath of God. God doesn't get wrathful. God is always against evil, even as he's always a God who loves us and wants us uh, to flourish. And so any view of God on any doctrine, and particularly in the doctrine of hell, uh, needs to hold these two ideas together, that God is always against evil. He is always righteous. He's always just, even as he's also loving. And I think sometimes then some 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 defenders of the traditional view have tended to emphasize God's justice and righteousness and dignity and uh, holiness at the expense of the obvious declaration of God's love for everybody. Um, and some of our friends on the universalist side, it seems to me, uh, have run into the danger of underplaying the fierce resistance god has to evil and his insistence that uh, evil be properly atoned for i don't think you have to go that way i think you could be a universalist on more orthodox grounds it's just that i don't usually find many universalists who are strong believers in um, uh, substitutionary atonement right uh, who are strong believers in otherwise orthodox doctrines they they tend to kind of shift to the left um, on, on a whole bunch of things at once. And I think we need to hold this together.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Atonement's a whole different beast. And I'm I'm trying to, to work through that now. I'm nowhere we'll close to Talk about that another time. Yeah, sure. absolutely. Um, I thought there were only three versions, and apparently there's not. There's so many different, e- even some subsets. So uh, I actually spoke with um, Robert Perry, and I've also spoke with Thomas Talbot, and they both used a similar metaphor. And I will probably butcher it, but I'm curious as to your thoughts on it so when i ask them what hell is and, I, and i'll ask you the same thing in a minute one of robin's terms and again i'm probably very badly doing this is it's it's a form of to put it into better terms like a chemotherapy that's going to ultimately result and be painful throughout the process but ultimately results in everyone and in this case everyone universally being reconciled and so your view is obviously not that so so what are some issues with that, I guess, scripturally or, or personally, and then, and then what in your, in, I guess, in, in a terminal punishment version of hell, what, what is hell?
1: Yeah, the problem I found with, with Robin's chapter in this book on the four views of hell, which is really, of course, three views of hell, plus a chapter on purgatory. Yeah. <laughs> um, because there really are the th- only three views, in case your, reader, or your listeners are confused. There's just the traditional view, there's my view, and then there's the view of universalism. Um, and when I've encountered universalism in other thinkers as well, whether it's somebody as lofty as Karl Barth or somebody uh, more like uh, the rest of us mortals— It always proceeds uh, deductively. It's always, you know, given that God is good, given that God is unwilling that any should perish, there's usually some reference to some scripture along the way. Um, uh, How can we possibly believe that hell has no back door? How can we believe that God's purposes would be frustrated? How can we believe that God won't get what God wants? And, And all of this, these are all good rhetorical questions. And if one was willing to grant uh, Robin Perry his premises only, then I think he argues pretty validly to his conclusions. The problem is there's a whole bunch of scripture that he simply does not take into account. uh, Hopes you won't notice. I'm being a bit cheeky here. Uh, And if you do notice, I think he has very poor responses to that. In particular, Seth, I would say that the idea that hell is therapeutic, therapeutic, like chemotherapy, is an interesting idea. It's just nowhere taught in Scripture. There's just nowhere, when Jesus talks about Gehenna, that he says, now this is going to hurt quite a bit, but uh, you'll come out the other side, and you'll all be all better. There's nothing like that in Revelation. The lake of fire is a boiling cauldron of awfulness into which Satan, death, Hades, are all plunged there's no indication that they're coming out the other side, new and improved, and that's where the lost go as well, within verses of each other. So the fundamental reason why I think universalism is wrong is that every description we have of hell is punitive, not therapeutic. And it is a, uh, I think, uh, and I say this respectfully, a willful recasting of what the scripture, I think, pretty plainly says to bring it into conformity with what one would prefer uh, God and the afterlife to be.
0: Yeah. Okay. Processing that. You broke my brain a bit. Um, So um, scripturally, at least from what I can gather, all three views use very similar passages. They may use a, a first part of a passage more than the back half, but they all are going to use the same specifics or the same um, text. So my question is they all seem to though use the word eternal or hell in a different way. And so as, since everyone's using the same scripture, how can we make a claim as to who is best interpreting either what eternal means or what any of that means? How can we, how can we know who's making a better scriptural case?
1: In my book, Need to Know, Uh, vocation as the heart of Christian epistemology, I do try to set out at book length how we should think about things as Christians, because this question has bothered me my whole life. How do I come to the best answers on vexed questions, not only of theology, but of politics or marriage, child rearing? How do I know whom to trust? How do I know how I'm supposed to live my life? And so I wrote this book, published it a few years ago, called Need to Know, And I hope that'll be helpful perhaps to you and to some of your listeners as well. In this case, I would say, well, we try to take into account everything that we think we know that's relevant to the subject. We try to make sure we do our homework or we borrow from people who we trust have done their homework. And we make the best conclusion we can, even though in any given case, the complexity of the situation may be such that there are still a few corners sticking out. There are still some ways in which my uh, friendly opponent might argue one verse better than I can. But my obligation is not to make all the pieces of the jigsaw fit carefully. My obligation is to make the puzzle fit as best I can, recognizing that I'm limited, recognizing that I'm uh, a sinner, uh, that there are some things I really don't want to perhaps acknowledge, and I try to to, to, to make the best sense of things as I can. So in this case, I would say um, most of what uh, you would find in the three views book, we agree an awful lot. We, we agree on, on on actually most of the Christian faith, which is why we can re- identify each other as Christians. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to exaggerate the difference. Hell's really bad, right? I mean, Robin Perry isn't saying hell is a nice right. spa in the country. He's saying it's like chemotherapy, right? It's yeah. awful. It's toxic. And, uh, and uh, the, the, the folks in the other side agree. It's torment, right? So we all agree it's torment. Uh, we all agree it's terrible. We all agree it has to do with uh, people uh, paying their just desserts. Uh, the differences then have to do with whether it's therapeutic, as I said, which I don't think it is, and the traditional view doesn't think it is. We see it as punitive. Um, the traditional view uh, thinks that eternal always means uh, lasting forever. And I think what Edward Fudd shows is that that's not true. Uh, uh it's not true of the Hebrew uh, olam in the old Testament. It's not true of, uh, uh in the Greek new Testament. And, uh, so I think what Edward does is win the biblical fight uh, against the traditional view, because I think he's done more careful work. Um, and that's something everybody has to decide for themselves. Whereas I think with, with my friends in the universalist side, um, I think that their argument is is a strong one deductively, but I just don't think the scripture actually gives them what they need to make their case.
0: Yeah. So how then how then if it's as simple as just knowing how to read Hebrew, which I can't. So yeah, I agree. You have to you have to find somebody that knows how to how to do it better than you. How then was it eternal conscious torment for so long? I can't assume it's only since recently that people realized, "Oh, this is not what this word is implied to mean. Um, mm-hmm. So why is it just recently that that people have begun to deduce that?
1: That's a very good question. I, I wrestled with that question a lot when I changed my mind about gender. And when I wrote my books on gender, the first one, Finally Feminist, which has that F word in the title, which throws people off. And that's good alliteration so, too. <laughs> it, it is. Um, so the, the kinder, gentler version of that is the newer version called the Partners in Christ. And I, I actually explicitly deal with that question in those books. Why is it that the, the majority of the church, through the majority of the church's life, and even in the world today, uh, has a, a male headship model and restricts uh, clergy to men? What is it that makes me think that we should change our minds about that? Was everybody wrong in the past? And I think a lot of biblical feminists, as well as liberals, have basically said, yeah, they were wrong in the past, and we are enlightened enough, we know the Greek and background, and we're right, and they were wrong. I, I think that's really intolerable. I think the Holy Spirit must have done a really bad job of inspiring the Bible and of leading the church if for 19 centuries everybody got this question really wrong, and we alone have seen it uh, in the clear light of a new day. So I actually suggest why when it comes to gender God did want us to read the Bible patriarchally until now, and now we are supposed to pick up on the clues that tell us to change our minds about how to treat men and women in the church and society today, but I'll leave that for another time, but I just want (laughs) to say that I I do care about that, and I think you're right about this, and I'm not sure I have a great answer to it on this one, Seth. Um, I would say, though, that pragmatically, the difference between my view and the traditional view— pragmatically, doesn't make a lot of difference. It doesn't make a lot of difference evangelistically. It doesn't make a lot of difference uh, in the main point, which is hell's really bad, and you need to flee it and run to Christ. Um, Whereas our universalist friends— they, it's not like they wouldn't want us to run to Christ, because of course it's better to be reconciled to Christ now than Mm -hmm. at the end of a thousand years of hell. Of course it's better, but it's not the same, right? That's not the same as saying there are two eternal destinies and you're going to one or the other get right with God now. So pragmatically, it didn't make a lot of difference. And uh, what I find interesting, though, is that I think apologetically it does. I I think why offend people today with the idea that God somehow is okay with the people roasting forever, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And it's not clear to me why that wasn't more offensive to uh, our Christian forebears and why they didn't wrestle more with that uh, because it would have been just as upsetting in the 13th century as it is uh, to us today. But Aquinas tries to make it okay. And I would say, why don't you revisit the doctrine? So I don't have a really good answer to that yet.
0: Yeah, you're right. That would make a great conversation. I was... I was thinking about that earlier. Um, I was driving back from South Carolina uh, yesterday, and it was a longer ride than need be with three children under the age of 10. A lot of bathroom breaks, but something that I was thinking about, and I'm sure I've heard it elsewhere, is the Bible, uh, much like the way people argue about the Constitution, but in my mind, I don't know why the Bible has to be static in how we understand it. And and like there was a time that Slavery was fine, and it was scriptural, and, and obviously now it's not. So there's a lot of those, not just gender-related as well. I think but yeah. the
1: obligation for us then, Seth, is to explain. Now, did the Holy Spirit want us to practice patriarchy until he didn't want us to do so anymore? Now, I think I can make a case for that, whereas I think it's very hard to make the case that the Holy Spirit wanted us to hold slaves and then changed his mind Right, And so that's where I think when it comes to LGBTQ questions today, when it comes to universalism, when it comes to other proposed alterations that people have for our thinking, uh, sometimes we got things, uh, we had different views in the past because of our sin. Other times it's uh, because God accommodated himself to our sin to make the best of a bad situation. Right. And then still other times, uh, there are fresh challenges that didn't occur to our forebears. I would say, for instance, that the whole rise of uh, creation care and ecological concern in theology isn't really an issue until human beings possess the technological power to really wreck the earth, which is really only a modern phenomenon. So it's not surprising Augustine and Calvin have nothing to say about it because it's not an issue for them.
0: Yeah, I um, I think I heard, I think it was Rob Bell said something similar to that of, you know, you're doing other things better but they also weren't destroying the planet and it's fine so they were doing i think his words were they did Leviticus better than you and you're doing something else better than them but that doesn't mean you can't learn from both sides um something and i'm i'm sure i've heard it elsewhere but something that has nagged at me over the last few months is in a in an eternal conscious torment version of of salvation why would someone so if if Christ can die on the cross and cover the sins of everyone ever in all times in a finite amount of time I mean he's not still hanging there, why then would someone have to suffer for a infinite amount of time when Christ is able to suck up all sin in a finite amount of time
1: yes that that it strikes me as exactly right and and what uh, and that's I think an argument for the the case I'm making. And what my uh, friends on the more traditional side will then say, they'll start start bringing more infinities into the conversation. So God has uh, infinite moral worth. God's dignity is infinite. And so to sin against that deserves infinite punishment. But Jesus is God who is himself infinite. And so you've got all these infinities. It's like a whole bunch of math problems with infinities. You just cross them (laughs) all out. And, and I find that both in math and in theology, infinity is a very tricky concept, and it's usually better if you can to avoid it entirely. So I think here, it just ends up in obfuscation. Uh, I think if Jesus is able to say, as he does on the cross, it is finished, mm-hmm. you know, teta it's paid in full, um, I think it's kind of sneaky to say, and he can say that because his infinity canceled their infinity as if we're talking about the same order of things. Philosophers would say that's a category mistake you're not talking about the two kinds of uh, things on the same level or the same category. And it's not helpful to see it that way.
0: Okay. I got one final, well, maybe two, but, but definitely one final question for you. Um, so, and it's, it's something that I asked, um, Thomas Talbot as well. And I don't know where I sit with his answer. So I was privileged enough to be born in America, but had I not been privileged enough and I was born in India and I was raised as a Hindu is there any hope for someone that has not been evangelized to and at death? Is there, any, is there any recompense, or that's probably a bad word, of them finding Christ, which I guess would be an appeal, and why universalism is so attractive? Um, is there anyone in a terminal punishment view, uh, conditionalist view, that there's any hope for that person if they've never had the opportunity to hear?
1: Oh, sure. Um, and I, in a couple different places defend what i call evangelical inclusivism i share with uh, my traditional brothers and sisters the idea that the only way anyone is reconciled to god is on the finished work of jesus christ who atones for us sin on the cross and lets us come back from the dead in his resurrection and uh, governs the world through his ascension and his uh, continuing lordship all of that's orthodoxy um, what uh, Where I disagree with some of my traditional friends is the idea that you somehow have to know about that to benefit from it. Mm-hmm. And I think that the New Testament is actually pretty clear that everyone in the Old Testament benefits from that without knowing about it. Hebrews 11 is full of examples of faith for the church to be impressed by, and all of them are pre-Christ. But what Hebrews 11 does say is that if, if you want to come to God in faith, you must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. And then it goes on to show all these people who believe that God existed and that he was good and kind and wise and would reward those who sought him out, who gave their allegiance to him. Now, you've got to believe that some of those Old Testament saints had pretty sketchy theology. Even what they knew was probably pretty sketchy. I mean, how much Jephthah or Gideon or these guys knew theologically, even in Old Testament terms, would have been pretty sketchy, let alone falling short of having any clue about Jesus of Nazareth and the story of the gospel. And yet this is what the author of the Hebrews commends to us as a pattern of faith. So I draw from there, as well as from other New Testament scriptures, the idea that one does have to respond to God in faith, but Paul tells us in Romans 1 that he has not left himself without witness around the world. There is no one who can say, I never knew. I had no idea who the true God was. Their theology might be terrible. It might be Hindu theology. It might be Muslim theology. It might be Buddhist theology. The theology they're being taught might be really bad. Frankly, there's a lot of people in the American churches today who are also being taught really <laughs> bad theology. That's fair. Right? <laughs> yeah. But if through that fog, the Holy Spirit reaches down to you, and of course, that's what he does for all of us, right? God comes first and reaches down to us. None of us just reach up to God in our own goodness. God reaches to us. And if we will believe that God exists and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him, we will be saved, even if we haven't yet heard of Jesus Christ. So my confidence is that when somebody dies in India or China or some other place in Africa who's never encountered the gospel, but has been visited by the Holy Spirit and has given himself or herself to Christ, or to God, I would say, to the true God, that when they meet Jesus, that's going to be happy for them. No one's going to reject Jesus who loves the true God, his Father. Uh, So I don't worry about that um, ever happening. I think that in this case, we can say, There are lots of good reasons to be aggressive in the missionary enterprise of the church, because people don't just need to be converted, uh, that is to say, regenerate. They need to grow up and become mature in Christ. As Paul says, this is what we do. We teach and admonish everyone so that everyone, we may present everyone mature in Christ. People need the Bible. They need the church. They need of the resources that we can bring to bear, not only to just to sort of get away from hell, but to grow up into maturity. So there's lots of good reason to carry on the missionary work with zeal, without worrying that if we don't, millions of people, through no fault of their own, are going to go to hell. That's what terrified some of our forebears, and I don't think it needs to terrify us.
0: So, so my last question for you would be a, a building upon that. So you're obviously in a in a in a privileged position that you can educate those that are then going to educate others in in religious, philosophical, theological issues. So, what would be the one thing, from what you've observed and unrelated to hell, that that the church could adopt? What would be one thing that the church should or could adopt to to really move the the mission of Christ forward? I guess for the next you know fifteen twenty years, something that maybe we're doing poorly or just is is not on the radar, and we really should look at it as As a society?
1: There's not much that we're doing as a church today really well in your country or mine. Uh, I think our our worship is pretty thin. I think our fellowship is even thinner. Uh, I think our commitment to mission is uh, about third or fourth or tenth on our list of priorities after we focus on our family and we uh, do our jobs and then we give what's left, maybe, to uh, Christian work per se. Uh, so there's not a lot we can be excited about. But I would say the one thing that has been shown to help adult believers live integrated, strong Christian lives is adult Christian education. Um, among our many problems is that we just are stone ignorant. We don't know our own faith very well. We don't know how other people think and how they believe we don't know how to relate our faith to what they think. Uh, we don't know how to contend for it. We don't know the Bible. So I think, frankly, podcasts like yours help people because uh, we have a lot of learning to do before we can really make ourselves clear to other people in the name of the gospel.
0: Mm, yeah, that'll be hard, though. I'd admit, I have to admit that I don't know what I'm talking about to make that work a while, which is hard. Um, we'll plug the new book a little bit and also point people to where they can find more about you and some of your words as well uh, before I let well, you thanks. go.
1: thanks. Yeah, thanks, Seth. Well, it's easy to find me. I'm just johnstackhouse.com. And my website will uh, show you around if you're interested in finding out more about me and where I write. Uh, my latest book is called Why You're Here, Ethics for the Real World. And so that will maybe something we can talk about another time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my other books are, are listed there as well.
0: And in, a, and in a nutshell, hopefully we'll sell you 15 more copies. What, what specifically are you, are you trying to approach in the new book about, about why I'm here?
1: Yeah, the new book is, is, I tried to get my publisher uh, to call it uh, The Meaning of Life, because it it, it really is, from a Christian (laughs) point of view, I'm trying to suggest, why is it um, that God has put human beings on the earth, and why is it that he has um, kept us here uh, as Christians? Why doesn't he just all rapture us into heaven? Uh, What are are we supposed to be doing? And uh, how do I think Christianly about my work, about uh, art, or politics, or child-rearing, Uh, not just about uh, Bible study and evangelism. Uh, And so this is an attempt to give us a very basic ethics, uh, a sense of what is it that God's trying to do with us and through us and to us uh, while we're here on this planet. And what do we have to look forward to? Um, One of the things I say in this book is that we're not going to heaven. Um, We're not going up to some kind of spiritual place in the sky, that we are going forward to a new Jerusalem on a new earth. And that's enough to get some people thinking, oh, just a second. I always thought we were just going up to heaven, but yeah. we're really not. And this book tries to suggest why we're not and how this can invigorate everything we do here and now.
0: Mm. Yeah, no, I am intrigued, especially when you say we're not going to heaven. I don't know if you saw, okay. but my eyebrows did raise. Um, <laughs> so, well, yeah, look, I look forward to having you back on to discuss that. And uh, I greatly appreciate your time today. Sure.
1: You too. Thanks, Seth.
0: Thank you so much to everyone uh, that listened today, to everyone that has supported us in any way, be it Twitter, Facebook, the iTunes reviews, uh, both the negative and the positive ones. Any feedback is so helpful. Uh, To those of you that have donated in any amount, I can't tell you how much that helps. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Thank you so much. Those funds help to make all of this happen. Uh, how else can you help? Please follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, but most importantly, uh, the best thing that you can do is rate this podcast in iTunes uh, and share it with friends, share it with family. If you like what we're doing, I would love to have as many people as possible involved in the conversation.
1: Live believing in the ghost. I
0: always said, though he slay me, I will trust him. That's Job 1315, though it pains me, I will love him. My friends say he's gone and I should curse him and die Another bell tolls and I see another hearse going by But I ain't inside of it I don't feel no sense of entitlement I may not deserve to ask these questions, but I got him. Why do bad things happen to good people? Ain't one of them But when good people suffer, how should I look at him? You see, I'm just a man I wasn't here to see the East cross the land To join the West and fight together in my sin's last stand Desperate in his hope to return. If all to losing in battle, it could never win. But Job had to learn. Skip a dark in your counsel by words without understanding. I know you'll understand, I'm just like every other man on the planet. Quick to speak, quick to wrath, and quick to fly up the handle. When the truth is there's some answers I can't handle <sighs>